Welcome to episode 57 of the podcast. Each episode is a different person's perspective on living adventurously. People often mention books, films, articles, people and places who've had a big impact on their lives. And if any of these things catch your notice, please do look at the show notes for each episode and you'll find them on the app or website you're listening to down beneath the description of the episode. I try my best to include a link for everything that each guest references. So for example, today's show notes range from bamboo bicycles to Isla whiskies and the carbon footprint of bananas. And they all came from Kate Rules, who is a fascinating, fun woman to speak to. Kate tackles adventurous journeys for their own sake and as a powerful and engaging communication medium, raising awareness and inspiring action on our most urgent environmental challenges. Kate is passionate about the need for urgent, effective, and suitably radical responses to our multiple environmental challenges, including a thorough overhaul of our values and worldviews, no less. Kate has cycled from Texas to Alaska, and from Colombia to Cape Horn through South America by bamboo bike, exploring diversity and climate change and the stories that arise from those issues. Kate was an indoor philosophy lecturer at Lancaster University for nearly a decade before leaving to explore outdoor philosophy, harnessing the power of adventure to inspire environmental action. You seem to have mastered the elusive work-life balance, or at least a way of trying to f- at least a way of trying to find a life doing work that you enjoy. Um, I so I'm, I'm going to read this from your blog, which I loved. It says you used to work for many years. You worked half time as a university lecturer in outdoor studies, teaching big picture environmental issues, sustainability, environmental education, and a bit of sea kayaking, and half time as a freelance outdoor philosopher, writer, lecturer, and environmental campaigner. I love that. So how have you managed to get this work-life balance focus? Well, that, maybe maybe I'm guessing. Have you mastered the work-life balance? Uh, yeah, I'm glad you asked that second question. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm in the thick of trying to write a book at the moment. So the work-life balance, when I'm not prevaricating, it goes a bit squiffy because, as we all know, writing a book involves spending a lot of time sitting on your ass in front of a laptop. And, yeah, that's not ideal. You, plus, before we press record, you were getting pinged with notifications from Facebook and the newspaper and all these terrible, terrible, terrible procrastination writer devices. Uh, I've actually been doing a series of Instagram posts called How Not to Write the Best Seller on my sort of favorite uh, procrastination devices. And quite a few people have said I should just publish those because they're quite funny and the book probably isn't going to be all that funny. So. Well, you certainly have. So number 18, I figured out it's easier to write in other people's houses than your own because you really can't tidy other people's sock drawers. Yeah. <laughs> so, you should see my sock drawer though. My God, it is so tidy. <laughs> what, what other tips do you have to, to avoid writing a bestseller? 
<laughs> well, going back to the work-life balance question, um, I, I am actually still pretty good at getting out on my bike most days. And I live in a beautiful place. I'm really lucky. I live in the South Lakes in Cumbria. So I can walk out of my door, even though I live in a little town, and go over a beautiful little tiny hill and see the sea and see the mountains. And so that's what sort of more or less keeps me sane. Um, and I've also taken on a rescue dog, so I suspect I'm going to be doing more walking and less cycling for a bit. And does it, do your walks up the hills, do they count as procrastination or seeking inspiration? They count as absolute necess- necessity sanity checks, definitely. <laughs> Which I think is going, going back to your work-life balance question, if I ever have achieved it, it's by absolutely prioritising quality of life over income. Um, I've very rarely earned a lot more than well not very much let's say because i was a half time for a long time and lectures don't earn a huge amount to start with so half time you're definitely not rich um but because i was half time i was able to take six weeks off in the summer and go see kayaking to the outer hebrides or shetland or the west coast of scotland and and that to me is is a pretty amazing uh thing to be able to do and i'd much rather have that than an extra 20 grand a year so so I think that, that for me has been the secret has always been prioritizing, you know, quality of time and being able to have outdoor experiences over what many people would call a decent income. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But geez, you, I mean, other people in another world would pay a fortune for a six week sea kayaking trip oh, out totally. of their office job, yeah. wouldn't they? So, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's an amazing privilege to be able to do such a trip. It, ever let alone you know often mm. so the main thing that i'm interested in talking to you about in a variety of different forms is the notion of adventure with purpose um that's the general thing that really appeals to me about everything that you seem to do they come intrinsically together whereas a lot of people and i'd include myself in this adventure very much comes first plus then gradually ignoring guilt you better tack on a bit of purpose on top of it otherwise it just seems a bit ridiculous so can can you define for me what you mean by a phrase you use a lot which is adventure plus adventure plus yeah it's, it's a concept that's sort of evolved so I kind of accidentally became an academic quite a long time ago. Um, I'm, I'm no longer when I finally escaped properly in 2014, but I was an academic off and on for 20 years. And during that time, I had, a, I think it's fair to say, a love-hate relationship with academia. I mean, there's many things I love. I love the students. I loved working with them. And I really love exploring important ideas and then trying to apply them in, into some sort of meaning. But I also really, really love riding my bike and being in mountains and going away on the sea kayak. And then, then at the same time, I was teaching environmental issues and I was learning more and more about climate change and how serious it is. This is back in 2006, around then. And nothing much seemed to be happening. So there I was taking all this stuff in with the scientists saying, actually, guys, this really, really is serious. And then you look around the rest of the world, nothing much seemed to be happening. So I ended up thinking, well, can I bring these two things together? Can I bring my yearning to be back on my bike and in the hills uh, together with this also a huge passion for trying to do something more on climate change to reach beyond my students and the academic world and and say to the world, you know, wake up, this really matters. We have to do something. And I came up with a slightly crazy idea of cycling from Texas to Alaska up the Rockies. 
uh, while exploring climate change in the most oil ravenous, oil dependent, oil hungry country or two countries actually on the planet. Um, and then coming back, turning that whole thing into a slideshow and eventually many years later, a book. So the idea is to use the adventure as a kind of a hook or a communication medium and bring the climate change story and the climate change message to a whole set of different audiences that uh, I didn't have access to at the time. So that idea of telling the story was right there at the very core. You didn't yeah. just think, I want to go for a bike ride because that's fun and then tag on, I'll write a story, I'll write a book at the end because that's the done thing to do. No, it was much more like, how can I bring these things together so that the the journey, I wanted to do a big bike ride in, in mountains, but I wanted to find a way of doing that where it would be relevant to a climate change story and help me tell that story. So doing that journey in a, in a really uh, kind of the center of the best and the worst around climate change kind of really made sense. I mean, if you're going to talk about oil, go to the States, right? Yes, yes. Or, 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 yeah. Qatar, but my Arabic is really very poor. So, Thank you. so that that was um, fourteen years ago. It'd be interesting. It'd be a different question to ask about how things have changed. But back then, what were the North American attitudes to climate change that you encountered? Well, as you would imagine, incredibly varied. I mean, everything from what <laughs> what <laughs> i mean genuinely i mean i ended up not using the word climate change but talking about global warming because it's a little bit more self-explanatory and some people even so had literally never heard of it which uh, really was mind-boggling until you start to look at fox news and at that point fox news which is the dominant media outlet was had a policy not to report on climate change. So it was actually a genuine thing that many people had literally never heard of it in 2006. So that was the one end of the spectrum. And then there was a sort of a middle group of people who had heard of it, but thought it was a myth or a hoax, or it wasn't that important, or, or God would fix it if it was an issue, or the government would fix it, or somebody else would fix it. And then there were other people that were saying, yeah, we, we realize this is an issue, and here's what we're trying to do about it. And at the mm. far end of that spectrum, I mean, even in 2006, the activism in the United States was very, very impressive. Um, and in Canada also, like there was a lot going on, including the I... mayors who were super exciting. I mean, they were just saying, oh, the heck with, it was a, it was a height of the Bush administration, right? Okay. At the time, he was considered to be the arch villain of the global climate change drama and basically saying, what climate change? And these mayors were saying, yeah, we get climate change. We're going to take our cities through a carbon descent plan, whether or not the government's behind us. So that was really exciting. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. I cycled up America in 2003, and it's so interesting. I'm trying to choose the route to ride through mm -hmm. any country. I'm always torn between thinking, if I go there, I'll miss thousands of wonderful things. But mm -hmm. in America, it really struck me that if you ride up the West Coast, up the Rockies, up the Plains, or up the East Coast, you get four totally different, different narratives, yeah. which yeah. is, yeah. I think, part of the appeal of America, isn't it? Yeah. Do, you, do you like America? Do you like traveling in America? Oh, I love it. I mean, me too. Obviously, I, I mean, hate the politics, but the passion, especially right now. Um, and there's so many things that are really problematic and, and actually right now deeply, deeply worrying about the states. But the people and the landscapes and the um, the generosity um, and the variety is just mind-blowing. So, yeah, I love it. I absolutely love mm. it. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of America. And one of my 
daydreams, I don't know where I've got it from, is to go and explore around all the little back roads of all the places like Alabama that I know yeah, absolutely yeah, nothing yeah. about and just eat in diners and talk to people and take yeah. photos. Uh, there's a, a maze, a website I love called um, Whitman, Alabama, which is someone traveling all around Alabama, getting people they meet to read out um, Walt Whitman poems. And I, whenever I'm a bit bored, I die, when, or probably when I'm trying to write a book, I dive into <laughs> YouTube and get addicted to these. <laughs> I'm going to add that to so, my list. How not to Procrastination write tactics, yeah. <laughs> so as well as, your, as well as trying to put together this piece of environmental communication, you're also doing in itself an epic journey through these huge mountains. So did you feel a, a sense of glory and pride at conquering nature and defeating the mountains and just being an <laughs> epic heroic explorer? Absolutely not. No. I mean <laughs> <laughs> um gosh, where should I start with that one? I mean number one I I but I was I am I am teeing you up by that. So feel free to tear apart my question. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> It's actually a really helpful question. I mean, number on many fronts. So, number one, I have never been athletic, particularly. I was absolutely rubbish at sports at school. Um, I kind of vaguely got into cycling as a way of commuting to a, a gap year job. I used to work in riding stables, and it was several miles away, and I used the bike to commute. And then, just gradually over the years, I kind of got more into cycling than horses, and realized it was this amazing thing where you could jump on a bike, and even if you were completely out of shape, you could ride. 10 or 20 miles. And at the time I was living in Aberdeen. So I started to explore the Aberdeenshire countryside. And it was just a revelation, just this freedom and how even the most mundane journey, if it were in a car, it'd be completely boring. On a bike, it becomes like a mini adventure. And I realized that the bike is like a magician and it, it, it kind of scatters adventure all around you wherever you go. And I just became hooked. And over the years, I've gone further and further, but from the basis of a very, very low athletic starting point. So the idea of, and I mean, I love mountains. I just have always been drawn to mountains, but the idea that I would be conquering them is kind of ludicrous. Um, do, you think, do, you think, do you think there's an excess of that narrative in general in the adventure yeah. world? Yeah, and that's the other side of my answer to your question. I absolutely dislike that narrative with a passion. Uh, the whole nature thing, um, I think, is is deeply inappropriate and, and inadequate now in many, many ways. Uh, it really doesn't help us think through how we respond to our environmental crisis. And arguably, it's one of the root causes. This idea that humans can conquer and dominate nature is, has got us into a heck of a lot of trouble over the years. And so I really think we need a very, very different narrative about being part of nature. I, I like to think of myself as a citizen of an ecological community, as well as the human social community. And if you think of yourself as a citizen of your ecological communities on pretty much the same terms as everything else, then that really shifts your perspective. You, you don't see yourself as conquering, you see yourself as part of a community, and it's a community that you really, really depend on. So my, my trip in the Andes, I, I, I mean, again, it was big mountains, but I was very much thinking of, well, who else, whose community am I in here? Human community, but also the other than humans. And, and asking mm -hmm. that question as you cycle endlessly uphill very, 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 very slowly. <laughs> or walk uphill, perhaps. Yeah, or walk uphill. Um, if there was any kind of illusions of conquering left, then they would be very much dispelled. <laughs> I think a bicycle is a good way for knocking that out of yourself, isn't it? Oh, totally. Uh, 
I one thing I really noticed so when I've been cycling across continents is that losing the feeling that I'm a British person in country X or country Y or country Z, and it just it yeah. sounds very hippieish, but you just become to feel like a citizen of the world and yeah. moving so gradually from yeah. place to place that one one day I'm eating a baguette and X months later I'm eating a some think of some food from another country quickly um and you've just done that gradually so so a bike yes exactly yeah little by little you move along um so i've set off on bicycle trips filled with my own assumptions about life and myself and the world what did um what did your ride your carbon cycle your first big ride what did that do to your attitudes about say your your carbon footprint which was important to you in that journey yeah, I mean, that was really interesting. So um, I flew across the Atlantic to do the carbon cycle journey. And to start with, I thought, well, this is fine. I'm going for three months. When I get there, I'm only going to be on my bicycle. And I'm going to use the whole thing to create a piece of communication about climate change. What's the problem? And then gradually, as I started to give the slideshows, and people would say, hmm, what's the thing about you flying to give a climate and I'd be like well I was there and anyway I, I gradually realized much to my kind of utter embarrassment that my rationale was exactly part of the mindset that's the problem so I was saying well my flight's different my flight's special my flight's justified and, and yeah that is the problem right we all think our own flying is justified so um, eventually, I'm a bit slow on the uptake, but eventually it dawned on me that this kind of attitude was really not okay for a climate change campaigner, um, even a cycling one. And so since the carbon cycle, which was 2006, I've put myself on a flight ration. Um, I didn't feel at, able or willing to give up flying completely, but I have flown for no more than once every three years since 2006. And I actually find that that's worked really well and it works better, I think, when you're talking to people than saying, well, I've quit flying, because many of us can't imagine quitting flying completely, but everybody could imagine rationing their flying, whether it's once per year or once per five years or, or however you do that. Um, so I found it actually a very helpful strategy for trying to get people to think more about their own flying and, and much more effective than saying, quit flying, you cannot fly. Yeah, so that, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I did wonder. Um, um, perhaps it was just something that didn't occur to you at the time. But why you why you didn't just choose to explore by pedaling away from your front door and doing the carbon cycle is just a, a big circular journey from your front door. Is there any reason for that, or did you just want to go to America, which is a, a valid answer? Yeah, no, I did think about that, but the the goal was to come up with a um, a sort of interesting enough adventure that the adventure would act as a hook um and i guess i didn't think that kate cycling out of her front door <laughs> would be interesting enough to do the job that i wanted it to do and i did want to ride in mountains which i could have done by cycling out of my front door i could uh, cycle through the lake district and through scotland um yeah. But also, I mean, I've done that quite a lot, so it didn't feel like an adventure and it didn't feel like I could portray it as an adventure. Perhaps that's a mistake, um, but but yeah. That's it. That's that's an answer. <laughs> um, but is it possible to for us to tackle climate change but still keep our wonderfully fun and joy, joyful and lovely and nice and easy modern Western lifestyles intact? 
or do I have to do I have to convert to wearing sackcloth and eating (laughs) mung beans or something uh, no and no is the answer to that. No, I actually don't think we can tackle climate change while entirely keeping our highly consumptive, highly uh, carbon uh, carbon dependent lifestyles intact. And I don't think I don't think our quality of life depends on it either. I mean, I think uh, for many Western industrialized countries, the quality of life that we're being sold is not actually a great quality of life. I mean, how many Mm. have been duped into working the best years of our lives to earn money to buy stuff that we don't actually need? It's it's a horrible model, really, consumerism as a model of quality of life. I mean, we we all need a certain amount of stuff, yeah, and it's nice to have good things. And I own five bicycles, but um, there comes a point where you don't need any more stuff, right? And but you I, always need one more bicycle. Absolutely, yeah. N That's the one. exception. Or <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, what's the other figure? S minus one, where S is the point at which your partner separates from you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I like that too. <laughs> yeah. um, and then in terms of um, brands and outdoor brands i'm really interested in the outdoor brand industry because we love the outdoors you and i we love kayaks and bikes and camping and stuff like that and i kind of think well i'm I'm buying a tent that's a nice thing to buy i should that that's fine actually it's even worse for me because i'm not buying the tent i get given them by sponsors and then subliminally i'm trying to tell everyone else to go buy more tents so how can brands create the stuff that we we need a bit and want a lot um and not just in a low impact way but in a constructive helpful way yeah it's a really important question isn't it and uh, a few of us are asking it now um, including the amazing rosie watson who's running to mongolia and has just put out a really challenging piece as i'm sure you know do you um, know do you know her yeah yeah absolutely she's from your neck of the woods isn't yeah, she is. she's uh, from north cumbria but i know her well um, she very kindly credits me with some some of the reason why she's running to Mongolia running, on the new, to story, get, new story. To get away from you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I like to think it's the Adventure Plus idea. Than that. Okay. Who knows? Yeah. Um, yeah, the whole brand thing, it's really difficult, isn't it? I think I think adventure can stand for a different model of quality of life. And we really, really need that. We cannot. We cannot have 10 billion people enjoying what we think of in the West as a quality of life, the high consumption, buy lots of stuff, earn lots of money kind of model. It just is utterly environmentally unsustainable. We we can't do it. Um, WWF have calculated that if everybody on Earth lived the life of an average Western European in terms of consumption of stuff and energy, we would need three planets. So it it is literally, literally unsustainable. So that's the backdrop, right? So now I think adventure can provide us with a very different model of quality of life. If it's about connection with nature, quality of experience, time outdoors, pushing ourselves in different ways to explore and and experience and travel. And um, yeah, something that isn't about stuff, but it is about time and connection and experience. However, (laughs) what goes along with that in a highly consumerist capitalist society is inevitably brands trying to sell stuff but also needing to sell stuff i mean it's their business isn't it 
needing to sell stuff. But it's, it's, it's their business because of the system that they're in, right? We don't have a system where a company can survive by selling a reasonable amount of stuff the stuff that we need, but not more than that. Every company has to try and sell as much stuff as possible in order to survive. So we need systemic change. I'm not trying to blame the companies here. They have to behave that way. Um, but they're behaving that way because they're trapped in an unsustainable system. And meanwhile, it just is a problem if we're all buying more and more stuff because of a lot of it is oil-based. It's got a carbon footprint. It's got other kinds of environmental footprint. And the planet just can't sustain us all consuming at this level. So outdoor brands are a small part of this very, 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 very big problem, but they are they are part of it, along with the flying that often goes with adventure. I think those are the two things we most need to look at, the the big carbon flights and the must have new new kit and new stuff. Mm. Well, I can very clearly see a way for people like myself and well, I, I won't lump you in with me, but people like myself to be encouraging people to have adventure without flying. That's a very obvious win, win, win type situation. But what I do struggle with is how someone, for example, me in this podcast listened to by uh, my mom and three people who like camping. Actually, my mom doesn't even listen to this. She says <laughs> she just, she doesn't listen. So, uh, but so it's li- this is listened to by three people who like camping what can I in the adventure world actually do about brand the brand side of things yeah. other than br- bringing down the entire capitalist si- system by myself, which, to be honest, I don't have the energy to do today. Oh, I'm disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> because somebody's got to, right? Um, but just before we bring down the capitalist system, I think uh, one of the things that we can do is really think hard about how much stuff we need. I mean, the, the easiest thing to do is to reuse and mend the stuff that you've already got. And come on, most of us have got more tents than we need already somewhere lurking about the house, haven't we? And most things are fixable way beyond the level that we normally fix them. So that's the, the easiest thing. The, the most sustainable thing is to use the gear you've already got. Um, the next most sustainable thing, if you really need something new or additional, is to get it secondhand. Um, and there are loads of fabulous sites now online where you can get um, other people's old tents like um, what an old kit um outdoor outdoor gear uk i think it's called outdoor gear exchange uk uh, just google secondhand outdoor gear and you'll come up with a load of them uh, that you can subscribe to and then i think it's about thinking about if you really do need a new bit, a bit of kit and then ask the brands well what's your sustainability um, policy and what work are you doing? Because the more of us who ask that, the more likely they are to genuinely develop an answer and not just do a kind of a greenwash thing. You know, oh, we have slightly better labels with less plastic in, but to actually really look at their supply chain and their carbon footprint and their other environmental footprints. And there are some really excellent companies out there. I mean, Patagonia, in my view, is is way ahead of the of the field and is doing really exciting work not just on minimizing their environmental footprint, but trying to give positively back to the environment with everything they do. So, And, and Patagonia, of course, are really interesting. Do you remember they had that advert saying, please don't buy this jacket? And they are really trying to grapple with this whole thing about making kit that lasts for longer, encouraging people to recycle their kit by its second hand. They turn up at Kendall Mountain Festival with a repair team and you can take any kit to them and they'll repair it so they really do have a very different ethic it's it's super interesting and and impressive in my view yes okay 
Um, um, answered by Patagonia. Um. <laughs> yet. <laughs> yet. Yvonne, if you're listening, <laughs> give Kate a ring. Um, Kate, what... Oh, I should, will be at the end of this book. <laughs> okay. I should say Dr. Kate here. Uh, what is an outdoor philosopher? Ha! Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another really searching question. My my academic background is actually philosophy, and I spent my first uh, proper job was at Lancaster University, which is a you know a really proper university, and I used to teach philosophy to lots and lots and lots of, of undergraduates, and a lot of the philosophy I taught was environmental philosophy, so asking really big questions about the relationship between people and nature. And particularly about why the relationship between people and nature has gone a bit wrong in the West, uh, which I think is unarguably true when you look at the impact we're having on nature. So anyway, there would be having these, I think, really important questions about the relationship with, between people and nature in lecture theatres, often, you know, artificial light, sometimes without even any windows. Um, and the only other than human being in the room would be my own gut flora and fauna, you know, <laughs> the absolutely only humans, nothing else. <laughs> so it started to dawn on me that maybe we would have better conversations about the relationship with people and nature if there was actually some nature around. Um, so I started trying to figure out how to take these conversations outdoors. Um, and over the years, that's evolved evolved in various ways. My absolute favourite outdoor philosophy event um, involves sea kayaks and the west coast of Scotland and professional environmentalists of different kinds. And we all get together once a year and go kayaking and try to remember why we're environmentalists and what we're working on behalf of and, and really reconnect with nature. Wow, that sounds like a wonderful event. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. It's really good. So it's just a bunch of a bunch of uh, a bunch of you paddling around Scotland, drinking whiskey, asking yep. big questions. You got it exactly. Trying not wow. to. Wow, <laughs> that sounds wonderful. Well, let me ask you a big question about that. And what's your favourite whiskey? Oh, that's easy. Lagavulin. Um, Sixteen. Really, really smoky. Any. Any. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, really smoky Isla Mall. Um, or any of the Isla Malts, actually. I also like Lefroig. Or... That's really smoky, isn't it? Really smoky, yeah. That's a bit too smoky for me. Is it? What's your favourite whiskey? Well, I like Lagavulin. Uh, I should I should say that I love Talisker because one of my favourite ever bits of work was <laughs> figuring out some way to do an adventure, starting <laughs> at Talisker, doing all sorts of adventure stuff around the Isle of Skye and ending up back at the distillery for food and whiskey. That sounds excellent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My life's been downhill ever since. <laughs> You're giving me ideas. Maybe the next outdoor <laughs> philosophy should be round Isla. Oh, fantastic. Quite so I won't, I, won't, um, I won't get you to answer these questions because we haven't got time. But you said just now that you were, you were um, posing some big questions about the relationships between people and nature. Mm -hmm. So I won't ask you to answer them. But what are some of the big questions about the relationship between people and nature? Well, how do we generally think that relationship is? Like, do we think of ourselves as part of nature or outside of nature? Do we think of ourselves as controlling nature, managing nature, dominating nature? Or do we think of ourselves as in nature and 
utterly interdependent with nature. And those questions are really important, arguably, because our, our relationship with nature is dysfunctional. I mean, we need nature relationship counseling probably more urgently than anything else in, in the West. I'm not talking about everybody everywhere, but in many industrialized Western countries, our relationships completely screwed up. And, and the result of that is all around us. I mean, that to me is the root cause of climate change and biodiversity loss and species extinction and all the rest of it. So I think these questions are key. Okay. And I think a good way of addressing them is through the the sort of storytelling you're trying to do of linking adventure with biodiversity. And so your set your second big adventure you planned was focused on some of these questions. Uh, you call it life cycle, which yeah. was to uh, ride the length of South America, more big mountains involved. Now, yeah. people planning bike adventures seem to be obsessed with the question of what bike should I use? So <laughs> what bike, what bike did you use? to go cycle the length of South America? Well, interesting you should ask that question. Um, the bike's name is Woody, and Woody is... A male or female? Male, definitely male. <laughs> and Woody is a bike uh, made of bamboo, and I built Woody myself at the Bamboo Bicycle Club in London. And the bamboo came from the Eden Project in Cornwall. So we think Woody is the UK's first homegrown bicycle. <laughs> wow. I've never been on a bamboo bike. I love the idea. Yeah. I mean, the most amazing thing about the life cycle journey, the length of South America, by far the most amazing thing was that the bike I built out of bamboo not only held together, but was actually the most reliable bike I've ever owned in my entire life. So that was really, really interesting. Um, oh, but wow. bamboo is gorgeous to ride. Um, I knew nothing about it before I went into this enterprise. But it's uh, sort of more like steel than carbon, let's say. It's very smooth and it's quite shock absorbing, but it isn't too flexy. I mean, you don't kind of end up like a like you're on a willow or something. Yeah. Like. Is, um, it, is it light or heavy? The bamboo is reasonably light, um, but there's a lot of glue involved in um, the, the joints are made of hemp, a vegetable kind of matter soaked in vegetable glue, and there was a lot of glue. And then we put some very, very strong components in the dropouts, so these big chunks of steel. So the bike ended up very heavy, um, but that probably wasn't the bamboo's fault. Do you still have Woody? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, when the bestseller is written, Woody and I are going to cycle around the country uh, ah. talks and selling books and connecting people with work they can do for biodiversity in their area. Collecting your awards at all the various book festivals. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly that. <laughs> well, sadly, my book, my bike that I cycle around the world on sat in the garage for a chunk of time after I got home before eventually I took it to the local tip and chucked it in the metal oh. recycling. So oh. it's probably now someone's tin can of some sort. Oh, so, Kate, does this mean you've just made the same old mistake again of going off on an eco-adventure, yet flying all the way there and just destroying all of your goodwill? This sounds like a terrible mistake. <laughs> well spotted, well spotted. Well, no, actually, for this on this one occasion, I managed to learn from my previous errors. <laughs> having been on a flight ration since the carbon cycle, um, a, it wasn't a flying year in my once every per three years world. And B, I decided I really, really wanted to do this trip without flying uh, to make the point that you can have amazing big adventures without flying. So I crossed the Atlantic on a cargo ship. 
which, according to Mike Berners-Lee, who is a carbon footprinting expert um, and author of a squillion books on the subject. I'm currently reading The Carbon Footprint of My Banana or something. Yeah, that his book is really good. Yeah. The carbon footprint of nearly everything. What, what did he work out about your trip? So he worked out that had I flown across the Atlantic, second class, that would have been two tonnes of carbon dioxide for a return flight at least two tonnes, actually, but let's say two tonnes, whereas going across on the cargo ship reduced it to 50 kilograms. So it was a massive saving, a massive saving, and so interesting. I mean, it was it was just a fascinating way to travel. And a, That's an I mean, adventure like, in itself. World. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, did, did you enjoy crossing the ocean by boat, or was it boring? Oh, I absolutely loved it. It was, um, well, I can imagine how it might be perceived as boring, but you know what it's like when you're trying to get ready to go on a big trip. And I was about to be away for well over a year. By the time you actually get on the boat, in this case, you are absolutely trashed. You yeah. haven't slept for days. You've just to-do list. raced to the very terminal and caught the thing by the skin of your teeth <laughs> with your luggage flying off in all directions. Um, you've still got to do this coming out of your ears. And, and yeah, so I was absolutely exhausted by the time I actually got on the boat. So to have nothing to do, there's no Wi-Fi on the boat. Um, and yeah, and I was on it for, I think it was 11 days on the way out and a month on the way back because I caught it on the way back further down the coast, Pacific right. coast. And there's that chance just to go up onto the bridge and look out at empty blue for days on end. Ah, I love it. Um, I actually really like being out of sight of land. It's one of those experiences that very powerfully makes you realise you, we think we're powerful, don't we? Don't we often, but we really are small things in a big, big system. And the sea is just immense. And to be on a boat for days and days and days and days and hardly see any other ships, let alone any habitation I mean it's yeah seven tenths of the ocean of the world is covered in ocean isn't it so planet earth would really be planet ocean yes yeah where were the the on the ship where were the crew from what countries predominantly on the way out uh, it was French predominantly and Philippine people from the Philippines and on the way back uh, German and uh, Russian and Ukrainian and Philippine Mm. So, I love that the sheer random diversity of these crews is brilliant. Yeah, the Ukrainian uh, crews were were particularly interesting. They had some yeah good stories to tell about the situation <laughs> in Ukraine. And, yeah. yeah, were you the only passenger? Um, on the way out, there were two other passengers, both of whom were women. Um, so that was great fun, and they also uh, were going to South America and could speak fluent Spanish. English and they were Austrian and German so that was excellent um, they, and they were really good fun on the way back there was one other passenger and he was German and he didn't speak any English <laughs> so, okay. so I, had, I had 30 days on the cargo ship was this all-male uh, crew mostly Ukrainian and um, and they spoke English but not if the captain was around because the captain was very anti having passengers on his, on his ship but had obviously been forced to accept some and uh, so when I when when um, the captain turned up, they all switched to Russian and pretended I wasn't there. When the captain wasn't there, they were dead friendly. So, oh. so how do you go about getting a ride on a cargo ship? 
Well, in the old days, you used to be able to just hitch and that's not possible any longer. But so you have to go through a broker, but there are brokers who, um, who negotiate uh, with the cargo ships and say, well, we've got this passenger who wants to go from A to B and they'll, they'll match you with a cargo ship that's going there. It's quite luxurious. I mean, you get a very comfortable ensuite cabin and three meals a day. If you're vegetarian, um, the meals are dreadful, but it's still three meals a day um, and a lovely cabin. And you can access the bridge at any time so long as you don't talk to the captain during maneuvers. Okay. But yeah, it was fascinating, especially on the way back, we came back through the Panama Canal and that is just an astonishing piece of engineering and a piece of history i mean completely changed the the history of the of the high seas and international politics and all sorts of things it's amazing how narrow it is yeah yeah it's literally just boat width isn't it by which isn't just isn't by coincidence yeah 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 extraordinary huge huge thing i was on on the way back so we went through the new part of the panama canal which has been built Ah! Oh wow! I could talk about cargo ships for hours, but then both my listeners would turn off. Then, so you you set off to cycle from Cartagena, Colombia, south sí. as far sí, south sí. as you could, down to Ushuaia, yeah. Tierra del Fuego. Yeah. Um, and I always think that putting a theme to an adventure is a really good idea. So, for example, I know a guy who cycled to the Ashes Cricket in Australia via <laughs> as many community cricket events as he could. On his journey, because that's what excited him. So yeah, for okay. you, you you're interested in sort of eco projects along the way. Um, could you tell me about the school you went to, whose entire curriculum is based on turtles? Oh, that was fantastic! Because I want to go to that school. Oh, everybody should go to that school. That was in northern Colombia, so it was quite early on in my journey. I started out somehow, although I was heading for Patagonia in the south. I started out heading north, um, and the turtle school was one of the reasons why, because there were just some amazing projects to the north. So I thought, oh, what the heck? I've got all this time. I'll start going north to get some. <laughs> okay. It was so worth it. So the turtle school was a school whose entire curriculum was based on turtles, and so the kids would do turtle creative writing, tell the story of the turtle from the egg hatching to the life of the turtle at sea. They did turtle maths. You know, if the turtle is swimming this far for this this speed, how far does she go? <laughs> they did uh, turtle biology, obviously. And they had a relationship with the local aquarium that was uh, rescuing turtles and then bringing up the young turtles. And these were endangered leatherbacks. And so the kids would get to learn about the, the baby turtles. And then when they were older, the kids would help release the turtles back to the sea across a beach that they just cleaned of plastic. So it was wow. just so powerful. I mean, amazing. It so gives you all, hope. Ah, all of these kids were growing up eco-warriors. There was, there was no question about it. And just really informed. And also really quite empowered. I mean, they felt they could do something about some of these issues. And Yeah, it was, it was great. It was really wonderful. What was the main difference between riding through the Rockies and riding through the Andes? Ah, oh, that's easy. No bears. You can eat sugar puffs in your tent. <laughs> Not worry. It was actually really, really interesting that there are far fewer dangerous things in South America from the point of view of somebody in a small tent by the roadside. Like, as you know, in North America, you have to be really, really anal about getting all your food out of your tent and any cosmetics. And you can't even have, you know, deodorant or soap in your tent at night because of the possibility of, of bears. 
Whereas in South America, yeah, I would be sat there with my sugar puffs and it was absolutely fine. Sugar, are they your secret weapons, sugar puffs? No, it was a weird, um, very popular South American snack. They were like like monster sugar puffs, sort of like over an inch long. Wow. Terribly bad for you, I'm sure, but... Well, that's the joy of cycling, isn't it? You can stuff your face with whatever you want and yeah. still become a athletic machine. Yeah, um, I, was, I was very pleased to see. I think I can't remember where I read it about you that one of your early cycling inspirations were the Crane Cousins. Ah, yeah. Um, tell which of their books did you enjoy? Oh, Bicycles Up Kilimanjaro. My um, my brother gave it to me as a present one year. I think because he wanted to read it himself, and. Uh, and I read it and I was absolutely hooked. I just so loved their sense of humor and they never took themselves at all seriously. And they did these crazy things like they cycled up Kilimanjaro really before mountain bikes had even been invented. I mean, this is in the seventies we're talking here. And then they came down and in all sorts of dangerous kind of styles and did all sorts of damage to themselves. But I, I, what I also really loved was that they were raising money for um, a charity that was then called Intermediate Technology. So they cycled across Africa um, and witnessed the problems that people were having with clean drinking water. And then they would raise money to get low technology drinking water wells installed in, in those villages. So I really loved that kind of integration of, again, the adventure and the purpose. Um, and was kind of inspired by the cranes. I, I think my first few trips were me trying to be a mini crane. You know. <laughs> <laughs> they were very early. They were early inventors of what is now called bike packing, yeah. weren't they? Traveling yeah. really light. And I, I learned a lot from them. One thing I always remember, which I think is ridiculous, is that they would take three socks, <laughs> not three pairs of socks, but three, three socks, socks yeah. left foot, Right foot, wash one sock, yeah. <laughs> put it on the next day. Three sock rotation system. And they used to throw off the handles of their toothbrushes as well <laughs> yeah. and take labels out of their clothes to save weight. And just well, I was delighted to find out about a year ago that Nick Crane's son, Kit, has taken on his dad's mantle and cycled to New Zealand, um, which is brilliant. Yeah, grew up in this, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's really good to see. So, um, I have um, a tradition in my podcast of asking people questions from my mystery deck of cards. Ooh, so what can, fun. can I ask you a few of these to finish off with for a few minutes? Yeah, of course. Now, you, you um, obviously, uh, you can't pick because we're elsewhere, so you have to tell me when to stop. And you can say pass if you don't want to answer any of them. Say, so tell me when to stop. Ooh. <laughs> What were the two <laughs> happiest periods of your life? <laughs> Crikey, that's a difficult one. <sighs> well, actually, I mean, this is going to be slightly random, isn't it? Because you could say a lot of things to this. But genuinely, getting to Ushuaia was pretty damn happy. I mean, I've, I don't think I've ever been so exhausted or so exhilarated at the same time in my life ever. I was actually somewhat hysterical on the run into Ushuaia because <laughs> I had seriously run out of time and uh, you know how Patagonia is famous for winds and so you can imagine like beasting it for day after day after day after day because I really really wanted to make it to Ushuaia the town whose nickname is the end of the world right but I had to get there by a certain time in order to turn around and get back again to catch the cargo ship home <laughs> and super expensive I'm not you know, not a refundable ticket. So anyway, so I was 
beasting it. And every time I did, it was like doing the turtle maths, you know, at this speed with this number of things, <laughs> oh, yeah. you get to Ushuaia and the maths just were not adding up. And I just decided I was just going to keep going anyway. I could not bring myself to quit. And then you get these side winds that were so ferocious that they would kind of knock you to the other side of the road. And then just at the point where you thought, I can't cope with this any longer. They turn into headwinds and you actually <laughs> go backwards. And, and anyway, right at the last, I mean, it was, it was crazy. There was no way I was going to do it. And then right at the last minute, the wind changed direction and I sat on a tailwind for 99 miles and just, oh. that was what broke the mass. But by that stage, I was uh, kind of laughing and crying out loud and just kind of speaking gibberish and, completely out of it really so when I actually cycled into Ushuaia with one day to spare before I had to turn around and go again I was so overjoyed to to have made it and um and what was especially lucky was that I managed to meet up with um Tara and Aiden who were two people who'd cycled to Ushuaia from Portland Oregon and by coincidence I had met Tara and Aiden three or four other times earlier on in the journey and I got there four hours before they were about to fly back to Portland, Oregon. And oh, wow. The only people in the world that knew what it meant to get to Ushuaia by bicycle at that point. So we had oh, that's four a magical ending of Pisco sour consumption. <laughs> that oh. was so joyful and so wonderful. Yeah. So that was a pretty oh. well moment. That's probably enough, isn't it? That's yeah. too worth, I would say. I think you answered that one very well. Okay, tell when stop. Ooh, I get a bit of your doctor um, wisdom here for myself. So, stick or twist. In general, my life is comfortable and happy. So, should I risk a new challenge and make big changes or not? Depends. <laughs> Am I allowed to say depends? <laughs> Yeah, I'm definitely up for new challenges. I mean, comfortable, comfortable and happy. That doesn't sound too exciting to me. I, I like I like new challenges and learning stuff and yeah, new things and moving on and tackling things. But it does depend a bit on the challenge, doesn't it? Like, yeah, there are certain challenges I wouldn't necessarily take on, like trading in my wonderful partner for another one just for the sake of it, or. <laughs> okay so you're advocating twist for yeah that. okay yeah okay. Twist. Okay. right next question oh. i ran out of flicking then so i'll take the one off the top who is your non-famous hero my non-famous hero Whew, there's quite a few of those i'm going to go with my partner actually um, who is the ultimate loyal, supportive, okay, if you want to go away for a year, I guess that's fine. <laughs> Just send me a tweet now and again. <laughs> Let me know how I can help you. No, I mean, my partner is could not be more supportive. We often get strange questions. Like, um, I mean, he, he is a man, and he's often asked, why did you let her go for a year? <laughs> At which point we both burst out laughing, you know, like it doesn't quite work like that, really. So why why didn't he come with you? Um, because he's got a job. Um <laughs> oh, that's bo boring. Can pay the bills, right? Okay. 
But he did actually yeah. come out and join me a couple of times, which is the sort of irony in the background to the life cycle journey because mm. I did everything I could to keep my carbon footprint down, but Chris flew backwards and forwards a couple of times. So yeah. there you go. Uh, Perfect. Well, okay. you know, your carbon footprint or your relationship, it's kind of... Yeah, well, I mean, this this gets the nub of the thing is that you trying to do some good in the world is actually ridiculously complicated and ridiculous. hard not to do, isn't it? It's ludicrous. Um, I remember I um, a year or so ago, a couple of years now, I gave up milk because that's really bad. So I moved on to almond milk, and then I promptly learned that that's trashing the universe. So then I think, right, I'll just live on avocados instead. And I think, no, they're destroying it. And oh, I'm going to be on monk monk beans. I don't even know what they are, but they sound horrific. Before <laughs> before I finally find some solution, right? I'll do two more questions, and then I'll let you go. Drink some whiskey. Tell oh. me when to stop. <laughs> Oh, we've had that one. I'll choose another one. What book should I read to make myself more wild, bold, and curious? Wow, that's an interesting question. Wow. You can read, apart from your own books, of course. Apart from the carbon cycle and the life cycle to be, obviously. Well, I'm still a big fan of Bicycles Up Kilimanjaro, actually. it's If you can find a copy of it, it's just... It's just such a fabulous combination of mad adventure and, um, as I say, great sense of humour and never taking oneself too seriously and trying to give back something positive to the world um, in, in a very powerful way. So I'll go with Bicycles Up Kilimanjaro. Good choice. Right. Final question. Da, da, da. <laughs> you say You say stop very late. Okay, here we go. Random one. Um, what did you think that being aged X was going to be like? And what is it actually like? <laughs> now, that's a good question, isn't it? Oh, you know, the whole aging thing is so weird. And so, yeah. Um, and the main thing I'm experiencing about the whole aging thing, I'm now actually 57. I was 54, I think, when I left for the life cycle, became 55 during it and 56 on the boat on the way back. Um, and I'm now 57, I think. And so and so there are changes that happen. Um, and I definitely don't look I don't look 20 anymore. You don't um, look 57 either. Thank you. Thank you. It's a, I, More I'm like 67. Like <laughs> well that's good that's more wisdom mate. <laughs> Sorry. but on the inside i feel like yeah maybe 31 at the most um and and what's weird is the disconnect between how you feel on the inside and how people perceive you and assume that you're going to be because you look like a certain age um and so when i rock up on my bamboo bike or like I had a lot of people in South America saying oh my god you're the same age as my granny my granny does not act like you and there you start to realize that people have all these perceptions about what a 57 year old woman would be like and what she would be doing and it wasn't what I was like and what I was doing and that happens all the time I mean it happens here as much as it does in South America so I think that's the biggest thing I'm noticing is just that mismatch between how I feel and how I'm perceived and how society thinks I would it would be reasonable for me to behaving now I'm this old <laughs> I I often feel the same way when I'm climbing a tree or jumping into a cold river <laughs> <laughs> yeah. okay so Kate I very much love talking to you I'm going to finish with a final question which is how old will you be 
when your new book is finished? <laughs> Hopefully less than 111. I'm not going to yeah. more than that. Okay. <laughs> okay, brilliant. Kate, thank you so much for chatting to me tonight. I've really enjoyed it. It's been My really... Pleasure. Me too. You've made me... Th- you've got, I've got some big questions to ponder. Thanks for the invite. Cool. I really enjoyed it too. <laughs> thank you. hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. If you did, please do rate and review the series on your podcast app. It really helps. Please also take a quick screenshot right now and send it to any of your friends who might appreciate listening. There are dozens of episodes for them to dip into. And if you enjoy mulling over the questions on my deck of cards, you can now try them out yourself. I've put them all into a notebook for living adventurously, which you can buy on my website. And whilst you're there, why not sign up for one of my three email newsletters or two other podcast series? Okay, enough of the sales talk. Thank you very, very much indeed for listening to Living Adventurously. I hope you'll come again soon.